Welcome to Not So Gentle Reminder. Yes, welcome. We are super excited for season one. Our focus this season is going to be on a variety of hot topics, or as the wise sage Nellie once said, hot and her. And her, exactly. Get the cheek band-aids on for those of you like us old who grew up in the 2000s. We are excited to start off a multi-part discussion of pediatric fever. It is so extensive that it does need all of the episodes, but before we get to the actual meat of it, why should you listen to us? Believe us care about what we have to say. Because we are qualified. My name is Dr. Vicki Reichman. I'm a board-certified neonatal perinatal medicine doctor in New York City, and that mouthful just means that in an ageist specialty like pediatrics in an ageist world like ours, I am the most ageist of all. My interests overall really center around what I can lift, so tiny and medium and larger babies, all kittens, all kittens, and Cheetos. But that makes you sound a lot snugglier than you actually are. Not very snuggly at all, actually. That's why this is called Not So Gentle rather than Snuggly Reminder. How about you? My name is Dr. Christina Brummy, and I am a board-certified pediatric emergency medicine doctor in Boston. What that means is I hope I never have to see you or your child. Not because I hate you, but because children are generally much happier outside the emergency department. Most people are. And when I'm not in the hospital, I am outside exploring nature and coveting other people's dogs. We are both dog coveters and friends who survived, possibly even thrived. We thrived. Yeah, we thrived in residency and fellowship. And now we are well-trained and pretty salty doctors definitely salty. What you can expect from us is that we will be doing the research, evaluating the data for you, and reporting back. We feel strongly about empowering parents in the care of their families, but we also know there is a lot of baloney out there, and it is really hard to tell the difference or even know where this so-called data is coming from. Being a parent is hard enough. You're already juggling approximately 64,000 things while still trying to do the best for your child and family. So let us help you digest the data, ignore the noise from all the strangers who have an opinion about your child. But you should definitely listen to us, to new strangers who have opinions about your child. We're the right strangers. With the right opinions. With the right opinions, exactly. Our plan is to offer you two flavors of episodes. The first flavor is the medical episode. This kind of episode is going to take a look at the medicine, do a bit of a deep dive in the background and guidelines and research that your pediatrician is considering when they are taking care of your child. The second type of episode will be a practical episode that will include product reviews, parent questions, and additional resources. Hopefully, Hopefully the goal is for them to be complementary to each other and you can learn a little something from both. Our first episode is going to be one of those medical type episodes about how your child's brain is not on fire. It isn't. At least not until our later episode about febrile seizures when it maybe is on fire. In this episode, the brain is not on fire. Fever is sort of an NBD. And we love talking about fever because it drives everyone so crazy. And there are so much misinformation about it out there and it freaks everyone out. So we want to start this deep dive by talking about fever in a couple of different contexts. First, we're going to do fever overall. So that's this medical episode. And then coming up, we've got a discussion of fever in babies. And then finally, we are going to really set your hair on fire because the brain is on fire. And that will be our discussion of 
of febrile seizures. As we move forward in all of these medical episodes, we will be as transparent as possible about where we get our evidence and the recommendations that we're reviewing. Where we get evidence can and will be its own episode later on, but we will always cite the articles we discuss in our show notes and on our website, and we will be as clear as possible about the quality of the recommendations that we give. Quality? What are you trying to do? Sell me some snake oil over here? I mean, sometimes. Sometimes that happens. It's usually on Instagram or TikTok. It's the cash-only business. That's where the good organic artisanal snake oil is. Only organic? I hate non-organic snake oil. You want it really small batch. Small batch, free-range snakes on a beautiful farm. They're happier than we are. But Really, sometimes in medicine, we can have a really solid idea about what to do something. It's been well studied since the dawn of time. Those studies are good quality. There's no bias. It was designed in a pristine fashion. And sometimes we're kind of just guessing based on what we've done for a while or what a consensus group of experts decides. Unfortunately, kids get the brunt of this type of research because it's a trickle-down effect, which isn't ideal. We don't always love replacing the lab rat or the lab bunny with a beautiful child. But this whole thing sounds pretty complicated. And I think it's complicated for us. Is there any way that parents can access it or see how the sausage gets made? Not usually. Even for physicians, it's actually pretty difficult to access. And it's embedded a lot in how we review medical information using larger analyses and studies, but this generally speaking isn't accessible to parents. We will have a link in our show notes about a table that goes over data quality. This is really relevant when there's practice guidelines that come from the American Academy of Pediatrics or the AAP, because part of it being a guideline is it needs to be relevant for all children and they have to show where their data comes from. So you can take a peek at that chart yourself, but we're going to get back into fever. Absolutely. Enough talking about how little we actually know about where the recommendations come from. Let's figure out what some of those recommendations or thought processes even are. Fever affects everyone. Have you ever had a shift in the ED without somebody coming in for fever? Never. Zero times. I've just zero. Zero percent of the time. Zero. I've always had a child with a fever. Everyone worries. And if you think this is an emergency, you are not alone. Lots of parents do. And we looked at a study from 2019 that was done in Europe where they looked at overall in a winter season, there was about a thousand children and fever was the chief complaint of about a third of all of those visits. And this included both outpatient clinic visits, the emergency department, urgent care. So parents are in really good company when they're worried about fever. But we, the royal we being the medical community, we're not really concerned about fever, at least if you have a child who is over 60 days of age and otherwise doesn't have a reason to have a compromised immune system. Doctors are just generally not that worried about your kid's fever. Totally. You know, 60 days of age, the clock strikes and then we're over it. And before that, we really have to own up to this. We are just super concerned about it. So we go from caring 100% of the time the full way to caring almost not at all and letting people hang. And we don't tell them that once the clock strikes 60 days, it's over. You've transitioned into someone that no one is interested in any longer. The reason that we care less, though, isn't just because we're sort of arbitrary and persnickety, which of course we are, but also because even though you feel like absolute crapola, like full garbage, the body's doing something useful during crapola. Yeah, crapola. Medical term. Fully well-defined, deeply specific as a term. The body's doing something useful during it, right? 
Yeah, and we're going to be doing a physiology deep dive, physiology meaning the way your body works, and we're going to be taking a look at another review that was from 2016, and it basically covers the point of 600 million years of evolution. Yeah, I hate when we only cover like 300 million years. It's so stingy. We wouldn't do that. We would not stand for it. We have to be extra thorough, all 600 million years of evolution. If you don't believe in evolution, we can't help you. But basically, the fever is a tightly controlled process. Body changes its set point in a thermoregulatory center, or think of it as like the body's thermostat in the hypothalamus, which is a teensy tiny little section of the brain. And lots of signaling molecules called cytokines are circulating in your body, and lots of things are happening here. Your metabolic rate goes up, your heart rate goes up, your respiratory rate goes up, it changes the diameter of the blood vessels, and ultimately your temperature also goes up. That temperature going up makes it an inhospitable environment for germies. And by germies, I mean viruses and bacteria who need proteins and iron to work well and to reproduce and to create millions of clones of themselves, which is how they define success. And, you know, anyone who's boiled an egg before knows that proteins have a real optimal temperature for functioning. And the higher temperature in this case, even those couple of bits of degrees make it really hard for viruses and to reproduce and for bacteria to build new cell walls and to spread and to colonize you and to take over and to make you feel like crapola. <laughs> crapola, once again. I've actually used the word cooties a lot recently, which I think is a universal term for germs in general. But if you want to take a peek at a really nice summary on Medium, Dr. Amanda Angelotti, hopefully we're pronouncing that correctly, has a good description of this where there's some pictures of what's happening at different temperatures and why your body's doing it in a really nicely spread out summary. So take a peek at that from our show notes for sure. And it's important to know that as the body is trying to impair the function of viruses and bacteria making you feel like crapola, it's doing it for itself to protect itself. And that is very different from somebody doing this externally to the body, from heat being imposed upon the body from an outside source like my New York City apartment in the summer, or like a hot car, or I think any summer day for you. And when your body is doing this internally mediated, tightly controlled process, this set point doesn't just keep going. It doesn't go infinitely high. We're trying to cook those viruses and bacteria, make their proteins less efficient, but we're not doing it to do the same thing to our own proteins. Your brain tissue is fine when the temperature is high. It's not like a delicious, tasty lobster, unfortunately. But a fever officially is defined when the temperature is greater or equal to 30 degrees Celsius. Love Celsius. Love Celsius. Super accessible. Also kilos, also super accessible. And all sorts of pediatrics things are in kilos and lots of Celsius. So 38 degrees Celsius is officially a fever. In Fahrenheit, which a lot of our thermometers and our conversations as parents and just people in the community not in medicine go, it's 100.4. That decimal point is critical. It's not 104. It's 100.4. Four. Which is the bane of every interpreter's existence in the hospital. <laughs> Just a source of infinite confusion. I would love to clock the amount of time I've spent thinking about that decimal point and trying to clarify that decimal point and use it to maybe write, you know, a 10 novel series. Anyway, so 100.4 or 38 degrees Celsius. And you want that measured with a thermometer. You hear that degree of precision in that 0.4 or in that greater than or equal to 38.0. I grew up with cheek touching as my thermometer. My mother thought it was 
perfectly accurate, but unfortunately, we really call that a tactile temp, not a temp that's been measured. And as doctors, we don't get too excited about it. No one's hands are special hands, even doctor hands are not special hands. And there's a really nice paper from 2020 that looked at whether fathers are as reliable as mothers as measuring tactile temps. And you'll be pleased to know that nobody was good. Nobody was good at knowing if their kid was febrile. So they let them measure it. Then they actually measured the kid's temp and people just, the hands are not thermometers, it turns out. It was a really cool study design. They looked at like 170 kids. They came with both parents to a hospital in Canada and they did that evaluation. Do you think your kid has a fever? Do you think it's a high fever? And then they checked whether or not the kid indeed had a fever. And no one was special. Mothers, not special. Fathers, not special. Doctors, not special. We are, our hands are just not thermometers. And if you're wondering, is there a good thermometer to use? There's been an explosion of thermometers, especially in the pandemic. You've seen a whole variety probably out in the wild, as well as at daycare, at school. And yes and no. No, because there isn't really a specific brand. Studies have shown that there are little variations by brand. And is the type of thermometer that you use that matters. And we'll have a segment about that coming up next. But the important thing to remember is for babies, you always want a rectal temperature. We actually, in the emergency department, generally do 24 months or two years old and younger, but that we try to do a rectal temperature. Yes, that means we're wrestling your toddler for that rectal temperature. And then for older kids, we're starting to use things like a forehead, an ear. Though that is most accurate, that does not mean that we think it's easy or pleasant for either the measurer or the measury source of great consternation. All right, so you've measured the temperature. You've been brave enough and strong enough and dexterous enough to do it rectally, and it's a fever. So what next? Are you supposed to be scared by what you find? And that's really, I think, another way of asking, does the height of the fever matters? And the answer is, you know, scandal. It doesn't. Every parent watching their kid be miserable feels awful, and they feel like the kid has this prize-winning temp. It's so extraordinary high. You have to go to the state fair on the way to the hospital and have everybody be as stunned as you are. Blue ribbon gold medal. I mean, I did win that a couple times as a kid, but it's over. It's a different generation. It doesn't count anymore in terms of the height of the fever. But once really they've crossed that fever threshold, how high it goes really doesn't matter that much. Yeah. And we've actually tried, again, royal we, medical we, have tried with lots of research over the years. We're trying to distinguish whether or not the underlying cause of the fever is something really bad that needs antibiotic treatment, or if it's a little bit less sinister, like a virus. Viruses still need treatment, but it's more like supportive care. You fix the symptoms, you try to make kids feel better, keep them drinking. But the big, ugly, scary infections we're trying to prevent or these invasive bacterial infections is not actually really well predicted by how high the fever is on their own. There's a little bit more nuance here. Again, we always talk about special babies less than 60 days of age, but overall, no. Height of the fever doesn't matter. Have a fever. It's the worst. I'm sorry. Crapola. What is it that does matter about a fever? If the height does not You've measured it accurately. You do have a fever. Can someone start caring? And the answer is yes, we care very much. But what we care about is what the fever is a symptom of. The fever is the body trying to do something to protect itself. So from what? And what is the context? What else is going on with a kid? What do they look like? What level of crapola have they arrived at? So is it the whole family and they're pooping their brains out because they all just went on a vacation? Or is it a baby who just keeps pulling at one ear? Or is it a 10-year-old who can't move their knee or someone with giant lymph nodes overnight and a 10-pound weight loss? Someone 
someone who can't be woken up at all and they haven't really peed in two days and they look as gray as I do after a 24-hour shift. A dry little raisin. A dry little gray raisin that will not be woken. You can really tell that those last couple of examples are different intuitively than a family with a pooping and vomiting illness because those have really different underlying causes that show that something is brewing in the body. We talked a little bit about those metabolic changes being the heart rate going up, the respiratory rate going up when your temperature is high, which is why when your temperature is high, everyone looks like death. I look like death. You look like death. Your kid looks like death. They're shivering. They're sweating. It's bad. But if they look pretty good between those fevers and their temperature is coming down and they're being playful and energetic, kind of like this Jekyll Hyde thing, that's actually hugely informative in terms of deciding how much to care about it. Yeah. And in terms of sorting out some of those underlying causes and figuring out how sinister they are, we try to be like little detectives to take in all of those context clues that we can, including periods during fevers and in between fevers to see how we can get patients and families through this and to sort out that underlying cause if it's available to us or make our best guess about it. And then also in trying to treat the fever. And we want to make sure that we do that because it'll make your kid feel worse and make it harder to be hydrated or to sleep or recuperate or to give you a break so that you can leave the kid alone for 10 seconds and maybe do something luxurious like run to the restroom, eat a snack yourself. Well, no one gets to do that. Parents, physicians, nurses, no one does it. But the fever should definitely be treated. I absolutely agree with that. We spent a long time explaining that the body wants a fever to impair the, re- the reproduction of those germies, those cooties, but the child won't be sicker. They won't be sick longer if you treat the fever. And really, you're trying to help them do normal kid jobs like keep hydrated, like sleep and do other things that actually will help whatever's going on go away faster. And when we are treating fevers, generally, we have two major tools in our arsenal. Tylenol and Motrin are probably the words that most parents have heard. Acetaminophen being the generic name for Tylenol and ibuprofen for Motrin. And one thing that I'd really like to emphasize is ibuprofen is only for children who are older than six months of age, not for babies. Baby alert. I agree. This bears repeating. There's certain things that are completely illegal until you reach the magical and probably arbitrary cutoff of six months of age. And those things are water and ibuprofen. So only after six months of age. And before that, Tylenol only. After six months, you get to use both. And you probably should use both. And we would recommend thinking about alternating them. These two medicines are extensively studied. They're very well tolerated, especially by older children. They have slightly different mechanisms of action. They act in slightly different spots in that inflammatory cascade that tries to cook your germies. And it can be really nice to have both in your arsenal and your like fever fighting toolbox. The primary reason why we actually alternate them is so you have options. When one seems to be wearing off and it's too soon to take the other one and you're staring at the clock, you're staring at an app, we want to stagger them by roughly six hours. Technically, you can be using Tylenol a little bit more frequently, but make it easy for yourself. Just use the six-hour cutoff. Tylenol or acetaminophen being cleared by the liver, ibuprofen or Motrin is cleared by the kidneys. So your child's body is happy. It is efficient at taking care of these different medications. You don't need to feel like you are just smothering them in medicine. You're not going to hurt them as long as you are using weight-based dosing that's safe for them. But there's some annoying little nuances about this advice. First, you need both on hand, which is easier said than done because often the only time that you're actually thinking about whether or not you have enough is when somebody's already sick. Two in the morning, everyone's miserable. That's when I need all of my medicines. Pharmacy is closed. Amazon not, not delivering. 
And the second thing is these won't treat or cure the underlying illness. They just help with the symptoms, the primary one being fever. But it also actually helps with some of those secondary ones like body aches, like throat pain, like the pain that comes if you've been trying to essentially cough up a lung over the last couple of days. Yeah, they're called anti-inflammatories. They help with some of those broader symptoms of inflammation that can make you pretty miserable, especially those aches and pains. They also lead to some aches and pains in parents because you have to do math in the middle of the night when you are sad and everybody's miserable. They are dose based on weight. So it's that kilo situation again. Da, da, da. I know we love we love doing this. This is like medical gatekeeping where we make people do math in pediatrics all the time, but then metric math also. So, which is super annoying. We as medical providers actually make oodles of mistakes in this math, which is why there is computerized order sets, all sorts of other length-based tools that emergency medical services uses. So if you've ever had a math snafu, we release you from that guilt. We have that power, you're absolved. But it is important to have some sense of a ballpark dose for each kid at home. The other thing, while the math is a little bit different, because of the concentration differences between the two medications, you actually come to run roughly the same number overall. I wouldn't hang your hat on that because there are some tricksy concentrations and I don't want to give you even more math, but just get a sense of what each of your children at home should be taking. I think the hard part is to remember to do that in a non-emergent scenario. The best way to do it is to have a little bit of a sense of how much your child weighs. Some doctor's offices are excellent and will have discharge instructions with lots of information about the weight and possible doses. And a lot of us don't have access to that or find that quite hard to find in the middle of the night. We don't recommend that you take your child who's already miserable and like curled up into a little raisiny ball and crying and put them on the scale. I don't think that's curative or therapeutic. But what we do recommend is have some sense of how much they weigh. Try to get a sense of that at well visits or even at sick visits. They'll usually put that on the discharge summary somewhere in there. But there are some ballpark age-based charts out there that can help you if you're between or can help you with age-based dosing. And there are some apps as well that you can use. The charts that we will provide, you can just save a screenshot of it in your phone, potentially hard to keep track of paper these days. Just in general, if you are using those age-based cutoffs, the companies, generally speaking, are doing it to keep your kids safe. So you might actually be lowballing them a little bit in terms of how much medication, which is why doing it with weight is actually the most useful. And I took a peek through the sea of different applications that exist for how to check medications, how to keep track of medications. And I promise we're not sponsored by any of them. One day, call us. Hippocrates is one that's free. It's actually used primarily by healthcare providers. So the caveat that I would say is it's a little bit cumbersome. It's a little bit bulky. You can filter it to make it only show you pediatric dosing, but in terms of some of the other clever stuff, like cueing you when medications are due, that is not this particular app's role. The one that came up consistently and that I actually really like the interface for was MediSafe Meds and Pill Reminder. And this is for everyone in the family. It's not just for your child, but what's nice is you can enter any and all medications that your child, that you, anyone in your family is on, and then it will cue you with notifications to your phone for when the next dose is due. There was one specifically for fevers. Well, I don't love the name Phoebe. I did not build this app myself or name it. It does cost $2.99. 
this again is something where you can actually be also generating data points for when your child has a fever, how high it is, and then also notifications to cue you when Tylenol or ibuprofen are due. And there are some apps that claim that they will teach you how to take a temperature without a thermometer. That's a lie. It is false. I thought we just discovered that nobody has the special hands. The app teaches you how to be bionic. Nobody has special hands except people who have this particular app. So I'm not going to specifically name any names here, but if your app is telling you that it is possible for you to use your hands and comparing it to a hot cup of coffee, an iced latte, please don't do that. Just use the thermometer. I completely agree. And also, if your app is cueing you to give your child one of those medications, but your child is finally peacefully sleeping, do not wake them. They may wake up with a bit of a bang if the medicine has worn off, but that sleep that they're getting is not worth interrupting. And it does have its own healing properties and let the sleeping child sleep, but just have a sense that maybe they've missed a dose during that sleeping interval. So you're ready to give them some treatment when they do wake up and yell at you because they're crapola feeling. Very febrile. Very febrile. Shall we recap? Yeah, let's recap. Let's sum up this first episode of our medical series regarding fevers with a few not-so-gentle reminders and practical tips. Our first not-so-gentle reminder is that after day of life 60, fever by itself is not an emergency. Fever is a sign that the body is working. This means that the height of the fever does not really matter, and what does matter is the context, and that means the presence of any other symptoms like profound dehydration or symptoms like cold type of symptoms suggesting why there might be a fever and the overall status in terms of things like alertness or how long this has been going on. And the best person to help you understand and interpret that context is going to be your pediatrician. Our next not-so-gentle reminder is that you can and should treat the fever. You can also discuss this with your child's physician at Well Child Checks to help update your dosing as it does change over time as your child grows and puts on weight. But unfortunately, like we discussed, many things in pediatrics do involve annoying weight-based math. But the general gist is that Tylenol and then Motrin after six months of age can be alternated. You can use them on an every six-hour schedule, which means that technically you have something to give every three hours, so you can alternate between the Tylenol and the Motrin every three hours. And again, please use weight-based dosing and keep track of your child's weight as best you can. After those not-so-gentle reminders, thank you so much for listening. We would love it if you subscribed and left us a five-star review. We want to be helpful to you, so we are really eager for your feedback, and there are lots of different ways for you to find us. You can email us at notsogentlereminder at gmail.com. You can slide into our DMs on the gram at notsogentlereminder. Tell us about the context for your last fever, or you can call us at 917-426-6908. Leave us a voicemail telling us what you want us to cover, questions you have, products you want us to review. Please see our show notes for links and our website, notsogentlereminder.com, for episode transcripts. Our next episode, which will be a companion episode to this one, will be a practical review of the different types of thermometers, so stay tuned for that. And here comes our disclaimer. Although we are doctors, we're not your doctors. This podcast does not represent the opinions of our employers. It is purely for education and entertainment. Every child and every family is unique. 
If you are experiencing a medical emergency, please call 911. If you have specific questions about the care of your child, please be in touch with their doctor.